I had effectively put a Band-Aid over something that needed stitches. And I'd done that for so many years that what happened at the end of last year was that, that the final straw sort of thing. That's Kian Raffi. He's a junior lawyer who got the dream start to his career that he'd always wanted when a mental health crisis threatened to completely derail it. Renowned for being a cutthroat, high-pressure industry with little room for error and lofty expectations, the legal profession has been known to chew up new graduates and spit them out. Kian was confronted by an office culture and various unexpected challenges that sent him into a tailspin, with his mental state spiralling out of control. Thankfully, Kian's in a much better space now, still pursuing his dream of being the best lawyer he can be. It's taken a lot of soul-searching, therapy, and self-awareness to get to where he is, becoming a man worthy of his own love. Welcome to Young Blood, the award-winning volunteer podcast dedicated to young men's mental health. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is a platform for everyday men to share lived experience stories and show that no matter what you're going through, you're not alone. Suicide is the number one killer of young people, and changing that starts with speaking up. So let's do it. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a thing. Help us reach more people by taking 10 seconds to give the show a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you've got some feedback on this conversation, I'd love to hear it. You can vote in the poll and leave a comment on every Spotify episode. I read them all. This episode is proudly sponsored by NBNA Group. NBNA has a single focus to support and guide people on their path to recovery from injury and illness, whether it's mental health or physical education programs, treatment or restoration following injury or illness. They can put together the right services for education, recovery and return to work. Learning mental health first aid is as essential as physical first aid. This training supports people to spot the signs, have the confidence to provide initial help and guide a person towards support. It's about learning to listen, reassure and respond to the warning signs of depression, anxiety, psychosis and substance use, potentially preventing a crisis. Check out their training and recovery options and services at nbassociates.com.au or Google NBNA Group. This show touches on some tough topics that may provoke strong emotions. If you find anything in this chat distressing, please do whatever you need to do to look after yourself. Tian, what made you want to be a lawyer? Uh, it was a long-term goal for me. So when I was 10, I um, started talking about wanting to be a lawyer. I um, always enjoyed debating and arguing and writing. So naturally, I was attracted to law. It's a um, difficult child. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> Probably a difficult adult as well. So <laughs> that's where the attraction started. And then in high school, I started participating in mock trials. So you're arguing with mum and dad growing up? Yeah, not as much as siblings, but um, I did argue with my parents. And so. teachers? Uh, more so as I got a bit older. Like yeah. when I was a teenager, I'd, particularly in high school, would argue with teachers. Okay, <laughs> and people told you you should be a lawyer? Yes, multiple teachers said, no, I think you should, you should be a lawyer. So, yeah. And did you look up to that stereotypical view of being a lawyer, you know, from the show Suits, typically? I hear that a lot where it's like, oh, why'd you be a lawyer? It's like, I was watching Suits and I thought... Harvey was cool, so I decided to <laughs> adopt that as a career. No, and admittedly, that's a gripe I have. Like, I've met quite a few people who are like, oh, I've really enjoyed suits because yeah. the legal profession is nothing like suits. Not quite that sexy. No, yeah. not, not, not remotely. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, not so much that. I went to court in person when I was year 10, I think, um, just to watch and see because I went to school around the corner mm. and um, being in court watching barristers that, really pushed me 
to pursue the path. So you like the performative aspect of it or are you just a very analytical person? Very analytical. I like the quick thinking aspect um, and successfully convincing someone that you're right. That's what really appeals to me. So there's a satisfaction in doing that? Yes. Yeah, for me. Was there family pressure? No. And I'm incredibly lucky. My parents were so supportive from the start. So when I told them I wanted to be a lawyer, they helped me do what I needed to. They were like, oh, man. (laughs) I mean, I get it. Well, I'm Persian background. My father's Iranian. Okay. And education is massive. Like it's very important Mm. to either be a, a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer in Persian culture. And so typically, so I'm sure some of your family, friends and friends of yourself, you would have seen that in other families where there was that pressure there for their kids to go and do yeah. one of those four things. Yes, absolutely. And I was lucky I didn't have that. So there were some, I wouldn't say hiccups, but I reconsidered if I wanted to be a lawyer. Very small periods because I was thinking this is too hard um, and had very honest conversations with them about it and they were supportive the whole way. Whatever you want to do will we'll support you. But I know that isn't the case for a lot of people who are studying law or they want to be a lawyer or things like medicine as well. I went to school with a lot of people who had that parental pressure and that's extremely taxing. So before they even get into the industry, they've got that, that pressure to be successful and it it's never ends really. But fortunately, it wasn't too hard and you didn't have to go and be a comedian. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How'd you go getting through uni? I, I did reasonably well at uni. I did struggle with my mental health. It, it really started deteriorating once I actually got to law school, more so than it was in high school. I think in hindsight, I had mental health issues in high school, but they did exacerbate once I got to uni. But I wouldn't talk about it to anyone because that uh, competition was there where I, in hindsight, I was wrong to think this way, but I thought of everyone as my enemy because it's such a competitive industry to get a job in. You're you're taught from day one in law school, it's extremely hard to get a job. You're basically told, give up hope that you'll get a job. So isn't that constructive really, is it? No. I I did journalism at uni and they told us the same thing on the the first day, which is out of everyone here, you're probably not going to get a job. I'm like, okay, well, I feel pretty inspired. Yeah, exactly. um, But sort of pitting you against each mm. other in that legal profession particularly. Yes, yeah. So if you're taught that from day one in law school, you're going to carry that through to the legal profession. And then you've got a group of people who have all been told that sort of thing. You're not going to get a job. So say you have 30 graduates start it's at a like firm. Hunger Games. That's precisely <laughs> what it is. Um, there's a, with law, there's a thing called a clerkship, which is like an internship. And there's a, a funny video on YouTube where it's called the clerkship games, where they're making fun of the Hunger Games. It's, it is exactly like that. It's kill or be killed sort of thing, which is the wrong attitude because it's not like that and it doesn't need to be like that. Taking it pretty seriously though, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> but you, you kind of have to think that way because everyone else is thinking mm-hmm. that way. So even if you're not like that as a person, you feel the pressure because everyone around you is like that. So it's just an endless sort of hamster wheel throughout the cycle of being a lawyer or studying to be a lawyer and then it carries through once you're actually practising. So what were you struggling with at uni that you were hiding? I was my own worst enemy and still am, um, extremely critical of myself. So I could get 
uh, high distinction. I would still find a way to say that's not good enough. So say if I got 85 on something, I'd say, why didn't I get 90? Rather than acknowledging that's a pretty good achievement. And then the constant fear of failure or, f- or fear that I wasn't good enough because you're in a, an environment where everyone is high achieving and extremely successful. So you could be successful yourself, but you might not feel that way because there are so many other people around you like What you. were you afraid of not having? Not making it as a lawyer because it had been a goal like from the age of 10, I'm 25 now, so more than half my life has been focused on getting to that point. So your self-worth rested on that? Yeah, I think so. And because I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I would do whatever it took to get there, but I started doubting myself. I have always doubted myself with everything, uh, but it did get worse once I got to law school and started studying and trying to be a lawyer. So perfectionist tendencies, which isn't a surprise, when you say you doubted yourself, was that anxiety? Yeah, yeah, and self-hatred. Um, it, it, I think it, it started in high school, but it wasn't so much academic. It was like the body dysmorphia sort of thing started and just a constant cycle of social media. You see everything, all these staunch people, and you're like, I want to do that. It started for me with body dysmorphia, and then it became academics and just not achieving everything I wanted to achieve. And putting all of that weight on yourself. Yeah, and not talking to anyone. I, I would occasionally get drunk and talk to my, the girlfriend I was with at the time and start crying or something like that, but I would never, ever talk about things without something to, like, Dutch courage to help. And that was wrong, and that was really, really debilitating. And I, I know that's common for most people younger men, that it is easier to just bottle it up. Well, until, until, until it's not. Yeah, exactly. And how did that manifest in your behaviour? Anger. Because I was so anxious and like I just hated myself. I'd be angry. And rather than opening up and saying to someone, I'm really anxious about this, I'm worried about this, I'll just be angry about it and not tell anyone. So they just thought I was an angry person. And um, I hurt a lot of people by doing that. Um, lost a lot of friendships, lost a lot of relationships. Hurt so people. you would react? Yeah, completely. And then it was an endless cycle of that happening over and over again and people saying, well, we can't keep doing this. Did you feel a lack of control with your anger? Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't say lack of control like I would still keep it in line most of the time, but I would say things that I would deeply regret. And like to this day, there's things I said 15 years ago that still stick with me. You would choose anger as a reaction, maybe because part of you thought, oh, that's better than admitting Mm. to yourself and others how you're actually feeling. Yeah. Even though it's so much worse. Yeah. But it feels like the manly way to handle it. It's getting significantly better now, platforms like this, so, so younger people can see that, like, traditionally masculine men, like big, beard, whatever it is, they have emotions and they can talk about things. But I, I didn't have that so much growing up. Um, and it used to be a lot worse. 
So you can see why men say in their 50s are like the way they are because that's how they were taught. And if I didn't get to the point that I did, I think I would still be like that. I, it took people leaving me and me being in such a bad position to get better and it, it shouldn't take that. What did you see other people struggle with at uni? Well, it's or you a, didn't see it because everyone yeah. was pretending to be perfect. It's a well-kept secret. Yeah. And I know, I know that's not the case for everyone. I think um, women in law school are significantly better at talking about things, well, at least from what I understand, talking to female friends. But like even some of my male best friends from law school I wouldn't talk to. If I got a grade that I wasn't happy with, I wouldn't tell them rather than going to them and saying, oh, I feel shit, I got whatever grade. I wouldn't want to tell them because to me that would be showing weakness. And they, these are my friends. And that's the way I thought. And so a lot of people that would be similar. That yeah. when it comes down to it, you still, you might yeah. be friends with someone, but they're still your competition. Yeah. And it isn't like that. In like it, it doesn't need to be like that, but it is because that's the culture we're taught. And it sounds like it gets stirred up yeah. more than it needs to. Absolutely. And that's the older people in the profession because they came through like that. There's an expectation. No, this is the only way you can succeed. I did this. I'm successful. So you can do the same thing. So you think they're doing it because they actually want people to have the best chance of succeeding, but actually it's not necessary anymore? Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think, at least in my experience, I haven't come across lawyers who are bad people, who are deliberately making people's lives hard because it is a profession that is based around mentorship and senior people guiding you. But at some point, I don't know when, historically, the approach was to beat people up until they succeeded. And that may have worked, but it's obvious that the newer generations coming through that doesn't work. And if you look at the, the way education's changed and like I'm 25, when I was going through school, we were starting to be taught things much better in how to talk and things were improving. The times change and yeah. practices need to as well. Exactly. What yeah. were you expecting life as a junior practitioner to be like? I knew it would be hard because you read everything in the media about what it's like. To, to work as a lawyer, I mean. And you just got told for, for five years at uni yeah. how hard it's going to be and the fact that you're going to fail Yeah, well. exactly. Yeah. So, like, I'm fully prepared, like, willing to sacrifice my health, really. I just accepted that. I said, that's if that's what I have to do at the start, I get that. That's just part of the job. And sacrifice your health as in not having time to eat properly, not sleeping properly because you're working such long hours, not training as much as you want to because you just can't fit it in with how much work you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Managing everything else in life at the same time. So no work-life balance because that's not important compared to the ultimate yeah. goal. Yeah, everyone works long hours, really, as a junior lawyer. And what sort of hours are we talking about just for people who aren't lawyers? To me, a decent day would be 10 and a half, 11 hours 
I would say, and I don't mean like constant working because you've got to record your time and that sort of thing. I don't mean recording 11 hours. I mean, like, say you get into the office. I'll get in and try and get in around 7.30, quarter to eight and leave around six. But you're happy with that now? Yeah. To me, that's reasonable. But that's because I know of people, when I lived in Melbourne, people who were working 16-hour days regularly. Um, And I've done a 16-hour day and, yeah, it's not good. Because it's, it's not optimal. <laughs> no, no. And like, I couldn't believe how exhausted I was from one. Yeah. So, and of course, that's going to bank up. Yeah. Over the yeah. course of a week. And then after a week or two, you're going to mm. be essentially drunk. Your um, sleep deficits build mm. up so much. And a lot of people in law will turn to drinking as well. So, paired with the exhaustion is alcohol abuse. And drugs like Adderall. Yeah, Medafinil. Well. Yeah. Um, so you see that sometimes too? Particularly through law school, a lot of people are using study drugs, as they call them. And if that's the way you're doing things while you're studying, if that's the, the standard you've set, of course you're going to do that in practice when you go into the profession. But if you want to be a lawyer for 40 years, you did that during law school for a couple of years, you can't sustain that forever. And that's why people will leave the profession because they can't do it anymore. Because they really do burn out. Yeah. And you've got to know that you are enough without having to take study drugs to be able to perform. But Mm. I suppose that's a symptom of that culture that's been stirred up where it's you versus the next person. And if they're they're enhanced, it's like athletics. Yeah. Then uh, then you need to be as well, which just seems like it's a bit too full on really for what Mm. we're talking about. But Mm. obviously it happens. So... Really big, intense hours. What about in terms of <clears throat> workplace culture and the pressure that's put on junior lawyers? For me personally, that was far more of an issue than the hours. I, throughout, I've been working in the legal profession for about three years. I can't recall many times where there was a particular task or a particular file where I was as upset or stressed or anxious compared to the way I had been spoken to by different people. We're all educated people. We've just done four or five years of law school. To get into law school, you need to do very well academically in year 12. Very intelligent people who go into work and are made to feel stupid regularly. Why does that need to happen? So were there comments attacking your self-esteem as well? Yes. Yeah, so not at the organisation I'm with now. I had a senior person in front of a large group of people call me fat and then at a different event in front of a similar group of people, same size, I was told I looked like a pedophile. And that's from senior people talking to at the time I was 22, hadn't even finished law school. Why is that appropriate? It's not. It wasn't necessary. What did anyone gain from that? Like if as an employee people speak to you like that, why would you be motivated to work harder for that person? Well, what do you think was behind that? Their own insecurity. Like I can joke around with mates. Like if my mates call me fat all the time, that's fine to me. But when there's a power imbalance between someone who's got 30 years on someone 
and very senior in their position, they're making comments like that. I can't kick back because if I kick back, and I was extremely upset by that, but by those comments, but I didn't stand up for myself because I was worried about a job and people take advantage of that. And that is really debilitating and demoralizing that you feel that you have to be accepting of the way you're being treated because you have that imbalance. So you really feel that power dynamic? Yes, yeah. I haven't met anyone who's a junior lawyer who hasn't felt that. And like I worked in politics before coming to law and it is a noticeable difference. That power dynamic is very noticeable. 30 years ago, they were you, mm. they were the person getting belittled potentially and they mm. managed to ride it out. And so now they have that old school mentality of everyone has to be treated that way because I was. Yeah. And if you don't like the way you're treated, and I cannot understand this because a lot of people I've spoken to who are older lawyers, when they talk about what it was like when they were a junior, they'll describe the bad things that happened to them. But then they go and repeat the same behaviour. So how hypocritical it is to sit there and say, oh, when I was a junior, this happened. And there have been instances where, not just me, I've heard other stories of the same thing happening. You go and complain, like someone said this to me, I'm not happy about it. Oh, you're being sensitive. Oh, this happens everywhere, don't worry about it. That sort of attitude is perpetuating the issues with the profession. And I think a lot of people forget what it was like as a junior lawyer. Yeah, and thinking that you can just attack young people over mm. their work ethic or the way they look because everyone's aware that there are, like you said, 30 other people outside waiting to mm. take that person's job. So it can become, with those power dynamics at mm. work, almost, I guess, humorous to some who uh, have that kind of bent where they can say, I can say whatever I want to this person and if they leave, who cares? Yeah. And it's not great for the young person who has to try to fill that role and trying to mm. establish themselves. Yeah. And there's also the aspect, and I don't think there is a way to fix this at the moment. Like if as a business you're motivated by profit, which that's the nature of business, if you have someone who's bringing in, say, a million dollars worth of work a year, and they call someone a pedophile, a junior lawyer who brings in no work. As a business, are you going to risk going and speaking to that person and risk losing that amount of money? Or would you just sit back and let it happen? And a lot of places have just sat back and let it happen. But it's obvious that people coming through, the younger generations coming through, aren't going to accept it anymore. So, and it should have happened a long time ago because people who are partners now talk about how bad it was when they were a junior. If it was bad for you and you didn't enjoy it, why are you repeating that behaviour? And there is no answer. There's no reason for it to continue. If you didn't like it, why would you do it? Mm. I guess you're talking about abuse and unfortunately, often people who've been abused will end up perpetuating abuse themselves later on and might not even think of it that way. But mm. that's a... The cycle. Talk about when you were interstate and you ended up having a period of time where you were really suffering. What were you going through there? It was around a year ago. So 
Um, it's I've been thinking about it <laughs> a bit because it's coming up to that time. I'd moved to Melbourne mid midway through last year, which it, it, it wasn't a long term plan. It happened pretty quickly, and it was a rushed move over a couple of weeks, and hit the ground running straight into it. Everything was going extremely well. I was on top of the world. I was finally a lawyer. So that was when I became a lawyer. I was finally doing what I wanted to do. Everything. Why were you prepared to move to Melbourne for it? Because that was the title that you'd wanted? I I knew I wanted to go to Melbourne at some point, but I I wasn't planning to do it straight away. Because the, the nature of the work over there is significantly different to what you can get in Adelaide. And the type of work I'm interested in and was interested at the time I wanted to go work with bigger clients with bigger matters I suppose in terms of status for you probably sounded good on paper as well it was more for me seeing my name and then lawyer under or solicitor under it because that's what I had had in my head as a goal for 15 years 13 14 years at the time so seeing that not so much of being able to go and say oh I'm a lawyer and I, to be honest with you, I thought that's what attracted me to it. And then I actually got there and I didn't enjoy the, the dick swinging aspect of going and saying, oh, I'm a lawyer. It just happened. So everything was going well, but then I started working on something that the content had a massive impact on me. And that's no one's fault. It was just the, the type of work it was. It, it took a toll on me more than I thought it would to deal with sort of um, child protection sort of work and that sort of thing. It wasn't for me. Um, and I'm a corporate lawyer. Like, it's not what I was keen on doing. But so I was isolated in Melbourne. I was by myself. I was in a relationship at the time and I'd went to that person for help because I was, I was really struggling in a... It wasn't anxiousness, it was anxiety, but that was full-blown depression where not sleeping at all and suicidal daily. Um, And so I tried... Had you you ever felt like that before? Yeah. Yeah, I I can actually pinpoint the moment I um, first... I had said to myself, if a certain thing happened, if this happens, I'm just going to go. And... That's, it's hard to describe that, that feeling. Um, so it, it, it had happened before, but not nearly to the extent, not even comparable um, to the way I was feeling around this time last year. But obviously associated with your lack of self-worth that you felt through your life and those things that you've had mm. insecurities about. Yeah. So valuing yourself less than you should. Absolutely, yeah. And just thinking everything, like hated everything about myself. Everything. Nothing that I was doing was bringing me happiness at that time, which is unlike me. And I finally cracked because I said, like, I can't keep doing this anymore. Because I'd gone to someone for help and got pushed back and that didn't help either. So I felt pretty alone because I, I didn't want to call my parents and tell them what was happening because I didn't want to worry them. 
I didn't want to handball my problems to someone else. It was a stubbornness and almost an arrogance that oh, I can just deal with this myself like I had done with everything in the past. And that didn't happen. And I've realised it's been a, a year of constant growth and trying to work out this is why things have happened. So even though I was unbelievably depressed, like just I sat in bed, like lied in bed for a whole day without leaving, apart from going to the bathroom sort of thing. And I'd never, ever thought that could happen to me. And is your recollection of that, that it made logical sense to you why you were feeling that way or it wasn't logical? No, there was no logic at all. And that is concerning. Because you're a very logical man. That's, that's, well, I'd like to think that, but I try to be. But as a lawyer, your mind is your tool. And I think that's where the reluctance to talk about mental illness comes from. Because you think if my tool's faulty, yeah. then I'm not equipped to do the job. Yeah, exactly right. And I feel that's why a lot of people in the past haven't felt comfortable to talk about it. Because I, I can say after I had done my earlier podcast talking about working as a lawyer and mental illness, still I feel that that could be detrimental to my career. And that's not the case at all. Like the organisation I'm with now, they were so incredibly supportive, the amount of support they've shown me after that podcast. So it's the complete opposite, but I still think that way. I still think, oh, okay, now a potential client will think this guy's crazy. And I don't think I'll ever drop that. But... But the proof has been otherwise. Yes, yeah. And by talking openly, my goal was to have just one person who was feeling like that feel comfortable to talk. And quite a few people have come to me and spoken about it. So it's proof that people talking, who are lawyers talking about their mental illness will improve things. But I still think it's not. I still think I'd had done the wrong thing. So that, that's linked with, to me, looking at it, it's linked with the way I've thought from law school. It's... Yeah, it's been ingrained in you yeah. so hard and conditioned that it's hard to get rid of that as a reflex and then you have to combat it with what you've learned since mm. and <clears throat> understand it and process it differently. But you're Initial reflex is like, oh, that's weakness, or oh, I should mm. I should push away from that. Yeah, which I'm sure a lot of people feel like that. So when you were really depressed and you knew that it didn't make logical sense, what was keeping you in bed or keeping you down, not allowing you to move past it? I think I'd gotten to such a bad point that I couldn't get out of it. I had effectively put a Band-Aid over something that needed stitches. And I'd done that for so many years that what happened at the end of last year was that, that the final straw sort of thing. It's like... Mm. Okay, so it's not like it was this one case in isolation and you never had anything before that that was underneath it. It was like it sort of triggered a whole range of things. Oh, I think... That one incident, like that one period, was directly linked with that one thing. But by getting to that point, that's when everything else started coming in. So the, 
reason I got to where I was was linked to one thing primarily. Yep, it opened it up. But it opened everything else up to like it's, oh, I'm depressed and so now I may as well start critiquing everything else I hate about myself. Which, so it was just a, a period of that. And it went on for months. I came back to Adelaide for Christmas and was, yeah, really un- not good to be around. Um, and I wasn't deliberately trying to upset people, but I could not find happiness. Um, nothing brought me anything of comfort or happiness or... Yeah, it was very, very difficult. And I went back to Melbourne and thought I was better and I wasn't. So I... And you're trying to get any professional help at this point? Yes. Yeah. I was getting professional help from around... When I, like, things really started kicking off and I said to myself, if I don't take a break, I'm not going to survive. Um... Like, I didn't trust myself to get on my own motorbike. And, like, there's no way to describe that feeling where you don't even trust yourself because I was concerned. And that's, I never, ever want to feel that way again. So I started getting help through a psychologist, um, went back on antidepressants. But it, it was a slow process because I was so stubborn. And where did it all go? It ended up in me moving back to Adelaide. Before that, though, in terms of the crescendo? As in, like, what motivated me to improve? Like, like did it, with it all coming to a head with your, with your work? Mm. Oh, well, I had a very embarrassing, almost public breakdown where I said to the the person I worked for at the time that I was suicidal and wanted to kill myself. Um, And very, very lucky to have such a a caring, supportive person that he was that helped me throughout the whole thing. But I thought I could get better still living in Melbourne and I couldn't, so I had to come back to Adelaide to be with my family. That made everything bad as well because to me I'd just thrown away such a fantastic opportunity. I just shifted my life to another city for less than a year. All that I've got to walk away from this is I'm depressed, I hate myself, and I failed. I moved back to Adelaide, started working for the firm I'm with now and wasn't improving. And I was honest with them and said, like, I, I'm unwell. So I... I took two months off. So I just started with this organisation and they were understanding. So I took two months off where I didn't work. I moved in with my parents who live in the Barossa to focus on just mental health and getting better and started going to the gym more and getting into that routine where I could process everything. And I had to regularly sit down just by myself and think about, okay, so what happened? How did I get to this point? Did you have answers for that? Yes. Yeah. They were slow. Like, it was slow to get to that point, but... And did you actually write them out or have them in front of you somehow? I think a lot and, like, try and keep a lot 
upstairs. Um, like I will write things down and that actually has worked for me. If you write things down, it does improve things. But I think I'm constantly in the background thinking about stuff and I would be thinking about that while doing other things. I was able to work out the potential reasons why things happened and how I can avoid getting to that point again and what I needed to reduce in my life or completely get rid of in my life to prevent that happening again. Can you tell us what those things are? I had to cut certain people out of my life because um, I looked at it and was like, is this person helping me or hindering me? And um, that was a really, really good thing to do and that did help me massively. But also, even though it was a really tough time, I'm not upset that what happened happened with me, like getting to that point that I, I wanted to take my own life and being in that period of depression because it gave me a greater appreciation for life in general and different people's emotions and gave me a lot more empathy because if I was in that position, I knew other people were as well. So I'm, I am glad it happened. So if I'm listening to this and I'm someone who's been in your position, and you're saying that you worked out what those things were and where it was coming from and what action you had to take. I want to know <laughs> what those things are. So you said you cut some people out of your life. Were there some other really clear things that you've been able to implement? Regular therapy sessions have been probably the greatest thing for me. Like you see a lot of jokes on TikTok and that sort of thing about men not wanting to go to therapy. And that is true. And I won't pretend it's easy at the start because it isn't. Like it's taken me a long time to feel comfortable. But once you start opening it up, you can do it far more easily going forward. And it just gets easier and easier. And I regularly will speak to a therapist. Um, exercise is huge for me. Like that came out of my life. When I was in Melbourne, I didn't exercise nearly as much because I was just focused on work. And I realised how detrimental that was to my mental health. So regular exercise and just being able to talk to people. Like I have a friend who was dealing with mental health issues at the same time that I was and he went on antidepressants at the same time as I did. And we were just talking to each other about how much easier life was for both of us because we're on it. So finding someone you can talk to regularly about what you're dealing with and how you're getting better so you can bounce ideas off each other. And how does someone who's experienced self-loathing like you have in an intense period but throughout your life, how do you start to love yourself? It takes time. <laughs> and I think when... Like what I've tried to do when I've had negative thoughts come in, um, because I try to use logic for everything, but I'm not good at it when it comes to my, myself. So thinking, oh, like say I say to myself, oh, you're fat, rather than thinking, okay, well, that isn't true. And So that voice in your head. Learning to how to say, well, like apply logic to what the voice in your head is saying. So if it's saying you're fat, okay, is that true? Yes or no? And just processing so that's each coming thought. from an emotion. Yeah. It's an emotional yeah. response. So then catching that and assessing it 
And actually, I suppose it would take a lot of work if your initial thought is something really negative, then you have to catch yourself and say, actually, no, that doesn't make sense and like break it down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So with every negative thought you have to try and go through it, like negative thought about yourself, try and process it and think, oh, is that, is that based on fact? Is that true? No. Or yes. Um, and like critiquing your own negative thoughts rather than just critiquing everything positive. And does that make you feel better? Yes. Yeah. And I think like the way I, I dress, for example, like wearing a suit to work and a tie, I feel far more confident than if I rolled in wearing like what I'm wearing today. I would feel you look less good, confident. Oh, thank you. Got the Lacoste? <laughs> yeah. And small stuff like that, going to the gym. So if I look at myself in the mirror, I like how I look. Mm. It all feeds into how you think about yourself mentally. So there's a junior lawyer who is a follower of this show and wanted to ask a few questions. Um, so he, he said, what do you believe causes young lawyers to limit themselves? Self-doubt and um, self-criticism. I think because if it's just you in your head talking to yourself, you don't have anyone there to, to sort of level your thoughts out and say, well, that isn't true. There's no one objective. That appears to be the biggest thing I found, imposter syndrome, where you're surrounded by highly intelligent people. So you think you're not as intelligent as them, even right, if you they're are. all thinking that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, re- I haven't met many junior lawyers who, have, who I know have been very honest about it and have said, yeah, I've never doubted myself. And I think that's true of many high-performing professions. It's like elite athletes as well. Same thing. A lot of them will doubt themselves and you read about high-level professional athletes and how they get better. They all doubt themselves too. So it's acknowledging that self-doubt will happen, but identifying ways to work out if that self-doubt is based in fact or not or if it's just in your head. And the amount of pressure that you place on yourself, like you have to succeed, you have to be the best, you have to beat everyone else, otherwise you're nothing. It's a very intense way to look at the world. It is. And to an extent, I don't think there's a way to for law students or lawyers to get rid of that. But you've got to be able to temper it. Obviously, you're yeah. doing it now. There's, there's a way to, to limit the impact it, it has on you. But if you go in with the attitude that I'm giving this 100% and you know that you're giving something 100%, that sort of takes the pressure off. Because if you've given 100% and the result still isn't as good, there's nothing you could have done more. So if you go in with the attitude that I'm going to give everything, everything I've got, you can only get the result that you've put the effort into. So if it's still not the perfect result, then you get feedback. Okay, I gave this 100% effort, but it's still not the result I wanted. How could I go about it next time? Because it's constant improvement. No one's perfect. And be able to accept that you're growing and improving as you go along and you can't mm. be perfect and not beat yourself up and hate mm. yourself because you didn't achieve what sometimes is an unachievable standard at that time. Mm. Yeah, and like perfect isn't achievable in most contexts. And it seems like... The perfectionism thing is 
particularly uni-based where it's like all about the grades and it's all about mm. getting that one out of a thousand jobs. But then once you work into the, once you move into the working world, there isn't as much of a place for perfectionism because it's really just about getting the job done to the requisite standard in the time limit and then moving on to the next thing. So it seems like that sort of gets worked up into overdrive at uni where it's all about like, oh, I got to get this grade. But in the real world, that doesn't actually transfer that much. Yeah, and I was saying this to a clerk the other day, actually, how surprised I was when I started working in the legal profession. I thought absolutely every single piece of work would be absolutely perfect. And then you realise in practice, nothing's perfect and people make mistakes. One little typo, like you need to avoid making those little mistakes. There's no question about that. But perfection is inobtainable in most cases in, in practice. So, so don't, don't aim for it. Don't aim for perfection. Limit your mistakes. What changes would you suggest need to be made for young lawyers to be able to perform op- optimally but also look after their well-being while doing it? From my own personal experience, it would be linked with just being spoken to like a person, not being treated as lesser than because you're young. Um, I think an acceptance that younger people and law students, we all know that we doubt ourselves. And so senior lawyers need to accept that junior lawyers clearly don't have a lot of self-confidence. So rather than preying on that lack of self-confidence, support people. And this is really junior employees anyway. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Because you're entering a new profession. In most cases, say you've just come through law school, you've been at uni, this is what you've worked four or five years to get to. You're not going to be perfect. And you know that. So you don't have that confidence because there are so many more senior people around you. So rather than having those senior people insult you and make you feel like you don't actually belong there, if they get around you and support you and don't make you feel like an idiot, it actually brings the best out of you. Like I've worked for people who made, made me feel small and stupid and then I've worked for people who have not blown up my ego but if I had done a good piece of work, they would say good work. Something as small as that makes a massive difference. Like I don't think there are junior lawyers out there saying they want to be made partner within six months. That's not the expectation. The expectation or the request is that people are spoken to like a person. There aren't these unnecessary remarks that literally help nothing. There is no benefit from saying some of the things that have been said to people. And then what about if you're the young person entering the workforce and you want to perform, but you also want to look after your wellbeing, what would you suggest or what are you trying to do now? I'm really, really transparent with the partners I work for. And I know that's not very common um, because people feel like what I was saying earlier about that power imbalance. They're afraid. But me actually going and being honest with the partners saying, just so you're aware, I've got mental illness and this is what I'd like to manage it. And my work improved massively once I had acknowledged that and worked with the partners to develop strategies. And I'm performing, to my knowledge, to the best I have so far as a lawyer. And I feel it's because I was honest about it. And then you don't have to have that dark cloud looming Mm. over you in the background, which you're sort of running from and trying to hide and you're worried about when people are going to find out and it's all going to 
come to a head, and it does. Mm. Yeah. Oh, like I, as an example, I remember I had my, um, I forgot my antidepressant to take it at home, so I, I had it in my bag, and I was so scared of the packaging, anyone finding the packaging. So I wrapped it up in something and then put it in the bin. And that pressure took away from my ability to work well. All of that pressure came off when I was honest about it and I realised, oh, this isn't the end of my career. It's actually going to benefit my career because I was honest about it. And realising that you've got to take a risk with that sort of thing because the benefit is massive. Yeah, and you're talking about being yourself and actually mm. showing who you are and the fact that you, you are human and you can perform the job to the standard that it needs to be performed to, but hey, also you are dealing with these other things that do impact who you are as a person and letting your workplace know who you actually are and say, I'm willing to work for you, I can do a really good job, but this this is me and I need certain support, sounds like a pretty healthy thing to do. And if your workplace supports that, that's the kind of workplace you want to work for. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, same, like, same with dating. You go yeah. out and create this image of yourself and you're like, I'm this perfect person. And then a few months later, they're like, oh, actually, it turns out you're not because no one is. And mm. then that becomes a, an issue rather than just be honest from the start. Yeah, exactly. And like, I think I can only speak from my personal experience. I've put in significantly more effort and cared way more with the bosses who demonstrated that they cared about me. And I don't understand if you use logic in what situation someone would be motivated to work better when you, you get called an idiot, for example. Why would you want to work harder for that person who thinks you're an idiot? Because you're an idiot, so why would you? So it's small stuff that needs to change. It's not massive things, it's small things. And given you're still working in the profession now, you're only at the start of your career, you've had this experience, why is it important for you to share this, share what you've been through publicly like this? Uh, because I very nearly walked away from the legal profession purely because of the culture. Not because I didn't enjoy the work. Like every day I get excited to go to work, to do the work. I nearly left because of the culture. And I know for a fact there are hundreds, if not thousands of lawyers, former lawyers in Australia who probably would have stayed or would have stayed if the culture was better. They didn't leave because they hated the work. It's the cultural pressures that push people away. And that's not just law. It's not just law, no. But I, I think for me personally, the legal profession, like it's so important to society. Laws are everywhere. You need lawyers. And to deliver good outcomes for society, I think you need good lawyers who are willing to do the right thing. And if you're pushing people away from the profession that would otherwise stay in the profession purely because of the culture, that's a disservice to society generally. So that's why I feel it's important to be honest. And above all else, look after yourself and value yourself no matter what job you're doing. Yeah, exactly right. Because um, like a lot of people are their own worst enemy and... You don't benefit from being down on yourself. So. Well, thanks for sharing, man. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you like what we're all about, support us by following Youngblood Men's Mental Health on Instagram and Youngblood Mental Health on TikTok. Every podcast episode is recorded in professional quality video and they're all up on our Youngblood Men's Mental Health YouTube channel. So please show some love and subscribe. 
You can find everything there is to know about the podcast at youngbloodmensmentalhealth.com. And most importantly, please share these stories with anyone in your life who needs to know they're not alone. We're all in this together. Catch you next time.